Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, June 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. But uh, first, uh, this is our second episode in the commemoration of Black Music Month, uh, which has been acknowledged uh, for the last uh, 40 plus years in the United States. The program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report uh, with dispatches on the call by the South African government for the strengthening of solidarity among the Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa states, BRICS. The Southern African state of the Republic of Namibia reports that activity at its major port has increased in recent weeks. We'll have details on that story as well. There has been another Pentagon-coordinated airstrike in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, leaving five people dead. And the African Union has expressed concern over the food, rising food deficits in the Sahel region of the continent. In the second hour, we look back on the history of African music, uh, which developed in the United States during and after the period of enslavement. We'll look initially at uh, the music that has been labeled as blues. And in the final hour, we'll also look at the history of the music that is labeled as jazz and its origins uh, in uh, the United States. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Tanzania. Jurati Jazz uh, from the equal Kariko uh, hits of uh, Africa, East Africa, from the early uh, 1970s. Let's listen in. Sama
Kana Kane wame norwak Nisilwa romino nguru ya eh Jori makasila Jokoda dina Nene moto wagimo Shiratika nidonje Omino kesh makoto Kondoke konyango sori Benjimani kano Watungu woro Ni esilo no somote Kondoke konyango Agoni kumbana Silwalo mina kutu Irumba paroi Katina dogerusa Wana medi morgilala Eto mini eliba Irumba iwakinike
mamorainya Lakini Joshua abuyo keko haku Yotunga mantura dakuta lo wanani Omini yeli ya yabilo ya uwe Kaoro ni moza abuyo keko haku Kivinyo mete mwuru makinja oji Banya jugu mane urako wago
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, June 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, that was classic uh, Pan-African karate jazz uh, music uh, from the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania. And uh, we heard an assortment of uh, classic uh, recordings uh, from uh, East Africa. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story deals uh, with the statement uh, by uh, the South African government relating to the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the BRICS uh, summit, uh, which has been in operation now for over a decade. The uh, BRICS uh, should uh, strengthen solidarity and deepen cooperation as the world confronts multiple challenges. That was according to Anil Sukhlau, Deputy Director General for Asia and the Middle East at the Department of International Relations and Cooperation in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, There was a clear call from all of the BRICS countries that we need to solidify even more our cooperation and that we need to interact more with the Global South, he told Shinawai News Agency. So Claude said the BRICS uh, cooperation uh, has yielded uh, positive results in many sectors. We launched the BRICS Vaccine Research and Development Center where we collectively address the issues of vaccine production, the issue of capacity, especially in developing countries. On the financial front, The New Development Bank has been a positive force for BRICS cooperation, he said. In terms of the number of projects that have been initiated over the past five years since the bank came into existence, uh, where it has assisted all of us in terms of our infrastructure and sustainable development projects, uh, South Africa has benefited to the tune of over a billion of U.S. dollars on projects under the New Development Bank. So, Claude. Uh, said the BRICS uh, remains relevant due to many challenges facing the global south and fault lines in the global geopolitical and economic landscape uh, where there is an unbalanced international architecture that favors certain countries. I think BRICS has to work collectively to address these challenges and fast-track the issues affecting the countries of the global south. Therefore, not only BRICS, but also BRICS partnerships with the emerging market and developing countries can be a voice of the global South calling for action to ensure that we don't accept the current uneven global architecture and should make it more inclusive and representative. The world, especially the global South has been suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic, the crisis in Ukraine, economic challenges, threats to food and energy security and global supply chains disruption most of which are the result of unjust unilateral sanctions imposed outside the United Nations system by select few countries. So we have to speak out and act collectively against these unjust measures. So Klaus said, I think the best way is to act as a collective force in the global South to challenge the unjust system. And uh, also in the Southern African state of Namibia, the Ports Authority, Namport, said the total cargo handle amounted uh, to 6.5 metric tons during the financial year of 2021-2022, indicating an increase of 6% year-on-year amid challenges 
such as the COVID-19 pandemic, global container shortages, and blank sailings. Uh, this was confirmed by Namport's CEO, Andrew, Andrew Kanimi, in a Namport bulletin released uh, just on Friday, where he also highlighted that vessel visits also increased by 289 vessels, or 22%. The financial year of 2021-2022 ran from April the 1st of 2021 to March the 31st of 2022. The increase in vessel calls was predominantly due to an increase in petroleum vessels, Namibian and foreign fishing vessels, foreign tugs, as well as research vessels, the team said. The Ports Authority also announced that 20-foot equivalent units handle amounted to 168,278 during the aforementioned period, uh, with 61,160 EUs, or 36%, were exported. A further 69,467 TEUs, or 41%, were imported, and 37,705 TEUs, or 22%, were transshipments. TEUs increased by 12,298, or 8% year-on-year, he said. Kanime said this increase was mainly due to increased containerized commodities such as copper, charcoal, frozen fish, marble, frozen poultry, sugar, chemicals, and scrap steel. Meanwhile, Namport further indicated that the bulk and break bulk volumes handled amounted to about 4.4 million, of which 1.8 million tons, or 40%, were exports, 2.6 million tons, or 59%, imported, and 34,709 tons, or 1%, were transshipped. The volume's performance uh, is certainly commendable, uh, given the tough operating environment that characterized the financial year, he commented. Kanime said, according to the statistics, major commodities exported from countries of the Southern African Development Community through Namibia are currently copper, manganese, ore, and wooden products, timber, while major commodities imported to Namibia destined to the Southern African Development Community countries are frozen poultry, vehicles, machinery, spare parts, tires, chemicals for mining use, electric goods, and electrical equipment. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswatch segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And Somalian and U.S. forces, according to a report uh, from uh, the Shinawa News Agency, conducted an airstrike in the southern region on Friday, uh, killing five Al-Shabaab members. Officials uh, confirmed this on Saturday. United States Africa Command, AFRICOM, said its forces in collaboration with the Somalia forces conducted the strike against Al-Shabaab members after the insurgents attacked partners' forces in a remote location near Bir Zani. The command's initial assessment is that five Al-Shabaab terrorists were killed in action and that no civilians were injured or killed given the remote nature of where this engagement occurred, unquote. AFRICOM said in a joint statement issued in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. Somalia and partner forces are expected to increase military raids into territories formerly controlled by al-Shabaab after U.S. President Joe Biden in May approved uh, the redeployment of troops to Somalia in an effort to counter the 
so-called terrorist group. Strikes have in the recent past largely targeted Al-Shabaab figureheads based in the southern part of Somalia, where the group still maintains a strong grip in some regions. And mind you, um, uh, many of these uh, assumptions and statements are coming from uh, AFRICOM, which repeats uh, their same uh, notion that they only strike terrorists and they do not kill civilians. Well, of course, we know this could never have been true. The African Union on Saturday, uh, in our closing uh, story, expressed deep concern over the worsening security and humanitarian situations in the Sahel region of Africa. The statement was made by the African Union's Peace and Security Council in a communique issued Saturday uh, that followed in recent meetings on the situation in the Sahel. The council expresses deep concern over the rapid deterioration of the security, political, and humanitarian situations in the Sahel region, particularly the continuation of terrorist attacks and the surge in fatalities, as well as the socioeconomic challenges which have continued to affect the peace and stability of development of the region, the AU statement read. It reiterated the AU's deep concern over the expansion of the threat of terrorism from the Sahel region towards the Gulf of Guinea countries coupled with the mutually reinforcing link between terrorism and unconstitutional changes of government. It also warned about the prevailing multidimensional socioeconomic challenges, such as the grievances, the community grievances, underdevelopment, climate change, impact, and governance deficit, and humanitarian crisis compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic strongly condemns all attacks by terrorists, armed and criminal groups against civilians, security institutions of the countries of the region, as well as the United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in Mali and other international forces, the council said. Now, meanwhile, it commended the efforts deployed by the G5 Sahil Joint Force and its member states in degrading the fighting capacity of the terrorist, armed and criminal groups operating in the Sahel region while appealing for intensification of efforts in the mobilization of additional resources for the joint forces. It also commended uh, international partners for their continued financial and technical support to the efforts of the G5 Sahel joint force, as well as to efforts aimed at addressing the dire humanitarian situation in the Sahel region. And of course, the G5 Sahel joint force has come under criticism uh, by many uh, in West Africa, including the recently uh, acquired uh, power of the military regimes, uh, particularly in Mali. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands, in fact tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs. And if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide radio broadcast, as well as the Pan-African Newswire, first, to get on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website at the 
panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we want to take another musical interlude, uh, this time with uh, classic blues uh, woman, uh, Mamie Smith, uh, from her 1920 release, Let's Listen In. Thank you. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the legendary uh, Mamie Smith uh, doing uh, the tune entitled uh, Crazy Blues. And, of course, uh, according uh, to uh, Black Past, uh, actress and performing artist Mamie Smith made music history in 1920 uh, when she stepped into a studio to lay down uh, Crazy Blues, um, considered uh, by industry scholars to be the very first blues recording. Uh, Smith uh, was a glamorous and multi-talented entertainer, stage as well as in film, a pioneering musical career, uh, the way for more than made the way for more than many uh, successful uh, blues and jazz artists uh, like Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, uh, which, who was no relation to uh, Mamie Smith, as well as Billie Holiday, although little is known about her early years. Scholars believe that Smith was born uh, Mamie Robinson in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1883. By the age of 10, she was working as a vaudeville entertainer and touring with the four dancing Mitchells. So she continued to tour with various acts throughout her teens. By 1913, at the age of 20, she was living and working in Harlem and soon uh, after married William Smitty Smith. She remarried twice after her career uh, took off. In 1918, uh, she was starting starring at the Lincoln Theater and Made in Harlem, referred to in some texts as Made of Harlem, a musical review produced by Perry Bradford, who also composed the legendary Crazy Blues song. Wishing to have some of his hit songs recorded, Bradford contacted and was rejected by a number of studios until signing an agreement with General Phonograph. In February of 1920, Bradford brought Mamie Smith to the company's OK Studios in New York to record that thing called Love, and You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. On August 20th, Smith and Bradford returned to the studio with a group of African-American musicians known as the Jazz Hounds to record It's Right Here for You and Crazy Blues, widely considered the first blues song on record. It was extremely successful. It was said to have sold 75,000 copies within the first month of its release. Immediate popularity prompted other recording companies to sign on uh, women African-American blues singers. And uh, there is, of course, much more uh, related uh, to uh, the contributions of uh, Mamie Smith, and of course there were many uh, women blues singers uh, during uh, the 1920s uh, that were recorded, and of course they have been credited uh, historically uh, for uh, initiating, uh, of course, the blues uh, within uh, the popular genre of recordings. Uh, records, of course, um, during the 1920s, and of course today, uh, not only vinyl, but also digital technology as well. We're going to listen to a documentary on uh, the history of uh, African music in the United States. Uh, Let's listen in. The blues is one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. I woke up this morning, year round 
such simple music, it seems timeless. Well, I will this morning But the blues does have a history, and it keeps changing. For the 1920s New York record industry, the blues was a parade of powerful women on stage, singing about sex, sadness, and feeling blue. This is the story of how a folk art met up with new media and became the bedrock of American music. From the deep south came the blues that gave birth to rock and roll. In the 1960s, white kids got the blues. I am the little red rooster. Blues ended the 20th century as the ultimate brand of authenticity. Music that could be celebrated by prisoners and presidents. This is music with humble beginnings. Oh, good morning, find my baby gone. It's a bent note here. It's something that says, I've been somewhere, and you've been there too, but we don't necessarily want to talk about it. And blues is kind of like that. It's kind of a mystery, and long may it stay a mystery, you know. The blues may have had its roots in Africa, but the music was born in the USA. I'm going down in Louisiana. Why is it that... There is no blues in Cuba, no blues in Puerto Rico, no blues in St. Kitts and Nevis. Why is that not happening? I'm going down in New Orleans. Get me in. In 1865, the American Civil War freed the slaves. By around 1900, the blues had emerged in the Deep South. Their musical roots may have been ripped from the African soil, but to talk to each other, Black Americans needed to forge a new language. In the United States, the, the music was broken up. The people were broken up. They were not parts of the same tribe. So there was nothing to express it except the blues. Well, you know, I just find out my trouble From the start, the blues spoke in the first person, talking about moving on. And leaving your troubles behind. I'm going down in New Orleans. Hmm. The blues comes actually as release from the kind of strict localism you call it. You know, being confined, and it's uh, you know you suddenly get songs about people traveling and people going to see this and people what they met on the road. <laughs> Appropriately, a railroad station was the setting for a crucial early encounter with the blues. Here, a college-educated black man named W.C. Handy, the leader of a colored band, 
met a lean, loose-jointed Negro vagrant. We're in Tutwiler, Mississippi, and uh, this place is famous in blues lore because sometime around 1903, this is the spot where W.C. Handy uh, recalled that he had first heard the blues. He was sitting here and uh, heard a uh, musician uh, playing a guitar uh, by uh, pulling a knife across the strings, and uh, Handy recalled it was the weirdest sound he had ever heard. was being improvised all over the South for pleasure and profit. Later, Handy heard in Cleveland, Mississippi, not too far away from here, uh, African-American string band playing the blues, and that was also a really pivotal moment because that's when he realized, uh, he saw people throwing coins at their feet and realized that he could make money off of it. The sort of music Handy heard is played today by the Ebony Hillbillies. Early blues music was dance music designed for adults to get them to come to some place and drink and have a good time. And so... It's, it's mating music, essentially. It's about men and women. The driving instrumental part of the blues certainly comes from early fiddle music, slave fiddle players, banjo players. But the blues was purposely formed as a dance music, so other musicians would make money, you know, to come to dance halls. turn of the century, the blues was being played by the poorest people on whatever came to hand. You see the old slavery pictures, guys working on a railroad track. They get to hit in the hammer the same way, you know. Then they make up a song. Her guys said they put a piece of wire inside of the house and played. Take tamarie, they play, they take a wash tub, they take a uh, uh, wash bowl, take spoons, you know. Anything that you put together like that with a feeling, somebody will listen. Handy translated the weird sounds that he heard into a publishing empire. In W.C. Handy Park in Memphis, a statue commemorates the writer, composer, and publisher who gave himself the title Father of the Blues. Around 1914, in the era before records and radio, Handy's Memphis Blues and St. Louis Blues became sheet music hits. What's really significant about handy hearing this music is that within a decade he was writing these and making good money off of this music so we often talk about blues as a folk music but almost from its inception it was also commercialized 
pursuing this new musical form was crisscrossing the southern states of America. Today, we think of minstrel shows as crude caricatures of black music. But at the beginning of the 20th century, dozens of African-American minstrels were putting on tent shows across the South. Minstrel shows and their successes, the medicine shows, which toured the South right through the first half of the 20th century, were, in a sense, academies for musicians who wanted to become professional. The tent shows traveled through the countryside, where audiences heard versions of the latest tunes from the big city. They were almost like kind of traveling salesmen for, for songs. They would pick up stuff from all over the place, whether from um, the vernacular, from songs that were being sung in plantations, or um, by professional troops, by musical comedy troops that was available on sheet music. And they mixed it all together. The men and women writing and performing the blues were ambitious. They used the latest media to bring their music to the public. It was New York, the capital of the new recording industry, that made the blues a driving force in popular music. Initially, the record business ignored black musicians. You have to remember that in this period, in the teens and 20s, the money in songs was in publishing. It was not in recording. And Perry Bradford, who was a black songwriter, he was a, a contemporary and, and a competitor of W.C. Handy's, was writing these songs, and he wanted to get hits. In 1920, Perry Bradford scored a big hit with Crazy Blues, sung by Mamie Smith. It's said to have sold a million copies. No one knows for sure, but what is certain is that it launched the blues as pop music. In the early 1920s, record companies began to release race records, music by black performers for black audiences. The first successful blues singers were women. The threat to whites was not black women, it was black men. So the black men on the stage were forced to black up. Black women were not. They could perform with their own skin. But a black man had to be a clown. He had to put on funny clothes and do funny dances. There was always interaction, although not always favorable, between American white males and black women. They were allowed to do or be vocal or say certain things that the black males would, wouldn't be able to say or do.
they were more showbiz in their own way, even though they were as, as gut blues as anybody else, but they had to dress it up. And there's nothing like a dressed up lady to turn the interest, I think. Luckily, they were some of the most phenomenally great singers. And even through those old records, you can tell the timbre of their voice and their delivery was amazing because this was out pre-microphone, you know, so these girls really had to be able to project. In segregated 1920s America, the blues queens performed on the black theater circuit and they lived their lives in a black underworld. When the artists used to perform and travel around, um, they would have to stay in people's houses, which turned out to be things that we called the buffet flats, in which you could get entertainment, food, you could get a bed, and you could get a bed with uh, someone else in it if you wanted. You know? Woke up this morning when chickens were The blues may have been a view from the bottom of society, but in 1923, the blues produced its first superstar, Bessie Smith. A dark brown woman from Chattanooga, Tennessee, she was a veteran of 10 years of touring with minstrel shows. Bessie Smith was talking about um, the woes of life with women and that's probably why she was so popular you know she talked about um, domestic violence which is what we call it now she talked about even fighting back emerging from a dirt poor background Bessie Smith at her peak commanded two thousand dollars a week for her live performances Smith lived the blues, and especially those sexual songs, because she had a reputation, and she lived up to it. Um, one of my favorites is Sugar in My Bowl, you know. Uh, I, I need a little sugar in my bowl. I need a little hot dog on my roll. I could stand some loving for so bad. I feel so funny. I feel so sad. You know, it's um, just something to entice. You know, you're going to listen to things that entice you. You're going to eat food that entices you. You know, why not have a little spiciness in the uh, music? The blues was black music making a lot of money for its superstars. But the structure of the music came out of work songs and churches. If it wasn't for cabaret... Where would I be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The call and response between the preacher and the congregation came ultimately from Africa. In travel music, one singer sang a line and the other sang it back. On a hill called Calvary. In the blues, the second voice became an instrumental voice. Y'all praying with me? Y'all praying with me? The call and response, uh, uh, when you sang the blues, you say a word, you say a lyric or whatever, then you play behind that. You know, for instance, I said, 
Thank you, sir. Then I turn to them, you know. Thank you, sir. Turn to them, you know. At Calvary, we hear the words. The call and response. You can do. You can go back to early Africa, and it's usually based on the form of people returning from a hunt. Saying, you know, I caught this blah blah blah, and the people say, yeah, you sure you caught that? You know, it's a, it's it's acknowledgement and confirmation. You know, and did you hear that? Yes, I heard that. What did I say? This is what you said. What does it mean? It means this. Was on his shoulder on a hill called Calvary. Religion spoke of the life to come, but the blues was rooted in the here and now. evolved into the 12-bar blues, turning sadness into stoicism and misfortune into humor. The blues is definitely more than just a sadness, because basically a blues, especially if you deal with the 12-bar, it's set up like a joke. You know, you repeat the line twice, and then you got the punchline at the end. I got a man that treats me like a rat. I got a man that treats me like a rat. He gets me so worried, I don't know where I'm at. It's a happy music. It truly is. It just that some of the um, subject matter of the blues sometimes had that sad feeling, but truly, <laughs> it is not a sad music. Well, if blues gonna take me, love me like a deal. Well, if blues gonna take me, love me like a deal. In 1926. Race Records got into a new market and a new type of Southern solo artist. Blind Lemon Jefferson, a street singer from Texas. His high, lonesome voice and solitary guitar sounded like another world from the vaudeville women who had dominated blues recordings. It was a different kind of blues. It's one-on-one. A person is just kind of hollering at the moon. You know, there's no, there's no ulterior motive for for a cat to do what he does uh, because he's expressing his or her soul to, to the universe. Blind Lemon Jefferson may have sounded like a voice howling at the moon, but he was backed by a business plan. Paramount Records employed black producer J. Mayo Williams to run their race records division. In his catalog, Williams appealed to his customers asking if they could recommend any new blues talent. And, by God, uh, someone working in a record store in Dallas wrote to Paramount Records and said, there's this guy plays down by the tracks here who gets these huge crowds, and if we had a record of him, we could sell a bunch of them. And that was Blind Lemon Jefferson. And the record company thought he sounded terrible, but they gave it a try. And, by God, it sold all over the country. He became a recording star, and his success transported him far away from singing on street corners in Texas. It's a long, long 
right for himself to say he owned his own car, he had his own chauffeur to drive him around. He was a he was a doozy. Um, that's it. I, I don't know about ragged. Some people say he was mighty sophisticated. Some people said he had some of the wildest suits you ever seen. <laughs> Have you ever heard a coffin sound? Have you ever heard a coffin sound? The success of Blind Lemon Jefferson gave birth to a new style of the blues. As if the vagrant with the guitar heard by W.C. Handy at the railroad station had come back to life. But this time, he was selling a lot of records. All over the South, the songsters were auditioning. There were street musicians with a big repertory of songs. But the record companies wanted just one thing. And the reason these fellas got pressed so hard into the blues is because the recording companies found out that blues was big business. So all these, you know, musicians who run around singing pop songs and ballads of the day uh, end up writing a bunch of blueses. The record company would simply go to the songsters. And they would go to the South, go to Atlanta. They would just say, everybody come who wants to sing for us. They'd get a hotel. Everyone would say four or five people to a room. Every, they would go and hear the songs. They would pick the blues and nothing else. There was one region that supplied spectacular blues talent for the Southern market. The Mississippi Delta was a flat area formed by the Mississippi and Yazoo Rivers. It was amazingly fertile soil for cotton and it proved equally fertile for music. But this was no ancient landscape of big plantations filled with former slaves. There was virtually nobody in the Mississippi Delta until quite late because it was flooded. You know, they had to build the levees on the Mississippi River. You needed the Army Corps of Engineers in order to get the modern deltas. And what that meant was that the population that was there at the beginning of the 20th century when blues was happening was very, very young. In the Delta, everybody was ready to get into the new style, which was blues. And so it becomes this huge blues center, not because it's ancient, but for exactly the opposite reason. Dockery's farm was hacked out of the wilderness in the 1890s to become one of the biggest plantations in the Delta. When Mr. Will first got here, there were bears and panthers, uh, and, and the whole place was covered in woods. And so he set up about to clear it, and he needed help. And so that's how he got so many people to come here, is he realized that these thousands of acres that he wanted to clear needed lots of helpers. I got to find out the house 
by 1920, there were more than 2,000 workers living on Dockery. It was like a small town, a town which needed entertaining on a Saturday night. But once you have this commissary situation and people standing out here in front of it being paid on Saturday afternoon, it was the perfect place for these blues singers to come. The greatest entertainer based at Dockery was Charlie Patton, the father of the Delta Blues. Patton sang at the top of his voice. He liked to clown, throw the guitar behind his head. He liked to talk to people in the audience. But uh, he was a performer. He was an entertainer. a lot of the extremes, you know, he had a lot of hard lives, and, uh, you know, he had a lot of women, he played a, you know, every blues man gets a little, a little, but he had a lot. <laughs> but I got something to find that something with. Uh, he had him a rough wife, and, you know, they lived a rough life, and, you know, that's that's what killed him at his, in his 40s, but, you know, it's, uh, and that's what almost got him killed a few times before that, I'd wager. <laughs> the blues singers traveled the South and performed in isolated plantations. The talent scouts connected them to recording studios. The most important venue was a furniture store in Jackson, Mississippi, owned by a white man, H.C. Spear. Well, really, he's the godfather of Delta Blues. He is the Delta Blues and Mississippi Blues, what Sam Phillips was, uh, to rock and roll with the Sun label in the 1950s. Gail Dean Wardlow tracked down H.C. Spear and interviewed him before his death. Uh, this is H.C. Spear, Jackson, Mississippi. By 1926, I became a talent scout throughout all the southern states. Well, he would walk up, in other words, on the streets and listen to a musician play. He was looking for four original songs. The uh, reason many bluesmen never got recorded is they didn't have enough original material. Spear told tales of drunken blues singers and bootleg liquor that fueled Saturday night parties. People came to drink, and they came to dance, and they were drinking moonshine. And, you know, some of this uh, moonshine was made through lead radiators, so, I mean, it had a high lead content. But there was always booze to be found at a party. H.C. Spear said, the bluesman, he said, he don't fit. He said, you got to have a drink before he can make a record. And he smells a little bit. But he says, they're great guitar players. Oh, God, big 
He said the Delta Blues was kind of like the meat barrel. It smells a little bit. And someone like Bessie Smith, the city singers, they had dialed it up and put perfume on their blues. Spear got a letter from Charlie Patton in the Delta, and basically Patton said, I think I'm as good as anyone has been recorded, and I would like to audition for you. Spear got Patton a record contract. Patton was good. Patton was one of the best tunnels I ever had. And he's one of the best sellers, too, on record. Mm -hmm. His records made him famous, and he passed on his tips to the next generation. How I started to make records was flying. Flying four mules on the plantation. And a man come through there picking a guitar called Charlie Patton. And I liked it, his sounds. And so... Every night that I'd get off for work, I'd go over to his house and he'd learn me how to pick the guitar. So I got good with it. For the musicians who started their lives on these plantations, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and many more, the blues offered a way out. Excuse me. <laughs> these guys never picked cotton in their life. That's why they're playing the blues. <laughs> to get out of the cotton fields they were playing. The black families working in these cotton fields were sharecroppers. And for many, it was a modernized form of slavery. Mississippi was the poorest state in the Union. Segregation was total. And the white man's word was the rule of law. A white shopkeeper like H.C. Spear understood why this was fertile soil for the blues. You take the Negro uh, for over a hundred years, he's been deprived of so many privileges. They could get into the fields and become uh, more satisfied with themselves by singing, you understand. It was singing off something that that's happened to them. A uh, white man would take them and keep them for a week or two and not pay them anything, or either maybe kill one or two now and then. It isn't what we hear, it's what we don't hear. What we don't hear in the blues is the real reason for the blues, the segregation and the discrimination. The, the control was total. Sing this song and I don't sing no more. Well, uh, to me, the blues uh, is the expression where uh, people couldn't express themselves. Those riffs and those songs came off of the expression of not being able to say to their slave master vocally that I don't like this. What is the cause of we being on the Highway 61? 129 women and children here, starving, some of them are starving and suffering, but we who have the right are dividing with them. Thousands of black people began to vote with their feet, leaving poverty in the South for jobs in the North. The numbers were boosted by the Wall Street crash in 1929 and the depression that followed. It signaled hard times for the music industry, 
Sales of records slumped, and the blues recording sessions dried up. Lord, it's some folks right now. We hound buses on Delta bluesmen like Sun House and Skip James made records that were commercial flops. Their music would lie buried like a time capsule. But in the 1960s, they would be rediscovered and acclaimed as masters of the Delta blues by a young white audience who adopted the blues as their own. The path that led these young white people to the blues began with a new kind of record scout driving south, the folklorist. The only white people so far involved in the blues have been record manufacturers looking for hits. But the folklorists were looking for music they wanted to preserve. John Lomax had grown up in Texas and had a long-standing love of folk music. In 1933, he and his son Alan received a grant from the Library of Congress to motor through the South, visiting big penitentiaries to make recordings. My son and I conceived the idea this summer that the best way to get real Negro singing, Negro idiom, was to find the Negro who had had the least contact with the white. People have written that my grandfather, for example, was obsessed with the prisons and that he wanted to capture something isolated. But he wanted to find the oldest material, which is a very important thing to do. It's like archaeology. It was very scientific. Prisons in the South were huge farms, which were run for profit. I mean, I think you could almost call it an extension of slavery in the 20th century. And the men had to work from sun up to sun down, what they called from cane to cane, um, from when you can't see in the morning until you can't see at night, you know, the whole of the day, in unbearable heat as well. The music sung by black prisoners inspired an extraordinary passion in the young Alan Lomax. He would spend the rest of his life recording music created by people at the bottom of society. I had heard all the symphonies there were and all the chamber music and, and the best jazz, and I said, this is the greatest music. There were 50 black men who were working under the whip and the gun, and they had the soul to make the most wonderful song I'd ever heard. The most spectacular discovery the Lomaxes made in jail was a 45-year-old prisoner, Huddy Ledbetter, known as Leadbelly. Good night. 
was a convicted murderer and had a fantastic repertory of blues and ballads. He had a big penetrating voice. He was a, a dynamic presence, almost frightening to some people. Um, he was, in one sense, a great performer, and you knew it for the second you saw him, but in another way, you thought, this guy is beyond performance. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? Come on, when Lead Belly got out of jail and met the media, it became clear how much American journalists enjoyed writing about bad black men. Life magazine published a profile, Bad Nigger Makes Good Minstrel. He was called a murderous minstrel, a sweet singer of the swamplands, here to do a few tunes between homicides. I'm gone where the cold wind this narrative had been shaped by reporters and the like who wanted to see, number one, a, a murderer who was out walking around and a murderer who sang songs that people enjoyed, which was, you know, it's priceless. My girl, my girl, don't you lie to me. Tell me in February 1935, John Lomax took Lead Belly to a mansion in Connecticut where a newsreel crew staged and filmed a reconstruction of Lead Belly's journey from singing convict a grateful performer. Ledbetter, what are you doing here? Boss, I come here to be your man. I come here to wait for you the rest of my life. It is scripted in kind of cringing detail to show Leadbelly as a servile, compliant, plantation Negro who John Lomax kind of shepherds out of uh, out of confinement. Thank you, sir, boss. Thank you, sir, boss. I'll drive you all over the United States. I'll tie your shoestrings for you. And you know I have to tie your shoestrings as long as I wait for you. And Later, John Lomax was embarrassed by this newsreel, while Lead Billy was angry because he didn't get paid. Thank you, sir, boss. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Despite growing tension between them, Lead Billy performed with Lomax at Harvard University and literary conferences. He got a new audience and that was unexpected, and that was educated middle-class whites who were very liberal. He didn't really have an audience among blacks. Lead Belly was never a success with black audiences, and white society saw him as wild and dangerous, an embodiment of his race. However, Lead Belly did find support in left-wing circles. We do not preach the sure hope of socialism in the life of these young comrades of ours. We preach that, yes. But As the blues entered white liberal society, the music could now be heard in the context of civil rights. The blues were getting political. I want all the colored people to listen to me. Don't ever try to get no home in Washington, D.C. Cause it's the push down. Ooh, it's the push down. The only support for blacks in the South in the 30s was the Communist Party. So there was a great 
symbiosis between the communists and this black. And in 1936, a meeting of the American Communist Party, they did officially recognize the blues as, as, the, as the voice of the proletarian black. But proletarian black record buyers were dancing to a different beat. The blues records that dominated the Harlem hit parade of the 1930s were by the Count Basie Orchestra. Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't your house look lonesome when your baby back up to me? You see, to dance, you must have a beat. In every beat, you put your foot down on a beat, and that's what Basie does for you. He can, you can dance with his music, it don't matter what he plays, any sound. And that's why, da, 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 da. Well, that's so pronounced, you can't miss it. You can't love me, baby, and treat me that way. Count Basie's band combined the blues sound of Bessie Smith with the latest developments in swing. It was a very successful formula. He took an eight-bar phrase, made it a 12-bar phrase. Now you got the blues. And he had 16 guys who can shout it. Oh, God, that was great. In the evening, in the evening, Mama, when the sun goes down. The blues singers were getting more sophisticated. The new style of blues crooners, like Leroy Carr, were no longer shouting the blues. We have electrical recording. Simple as that. You didn't need to shout. So these singers could be more intimate. And there's another innovation comes at the same time, radio. So an intimate voice singing softly in a radio late at night, irresistible. Well, it's hard to tell, hard to tell. Which one will treat you the best when the sun goes down? This melody was not lost on a young man in Mississippi. Well, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell When all your love's in vain, all your love's in vain In 1936, a 25-year-old walked into H.C. Spears' store in Jackson, Mississippi. His name was Robert Johnson. He had a bunch of songs and he wanted an audition to make some records. Well, I felt lonesome, I was lonesome, and I could not help but cry all my love and pain. Robert Johnson really used his ears, and he listened to everything that was going on around him, and he took in... He took in everything that was going on. All the popular musicians around him, he took their styles and he took them off of other instruments and arranged them for his instruments, for, you know. He's the first person we have from the blues world who had heard all the blues records. And as a result, he's the first person who doesn't just play a style from his place. He's like already this compendium of the greatest blues styles of the 20s and early 30s, and he's putting it all together. I woke up this morning, year-round for my shoes. In his short lifetime, Robert Johnson recorded 29 songs. He remained almost totally unknown. Year-round for my 
But beginning in the 1960s, Johnson's songs would see him acclaimed as king of the Delta Blues singers. I think he brought the idea of writing them yourself and uh, and playing them yourself to a new peak. You know, where it became important that you were actually singing your own songs. Guitar playing is on the virtuoso scale. It, this is uh, you're listening to an orchestra there. You're, you're not listening to one guy. This is impossible. In New York City, Robert Johnson had one very important fan. John Hammond was a record producer from a wealthy background who combined left-wing politics, man-about-town sophistication, with a very discerning ear. He discovered and encouraged Count Basie, Billie Holiday, and Bob Dylan. Hammond described Johnson as the greatest Negro blues singer who has cropped up in recent years in a communist magazine. He asked the magazine to sponsor a concert he was planning which would showcase the rich heritage of black music. I'm sure John had never bothered to join anything, but he didn't mind contributing to the Communist Party if they would help make it possible to have this concert. Hammond sent scouts down south to locate Robert Johnson, but they returned with the news that Johnson had died in mysterious circumstances. Nevertheless, the show went on. In December of 1938, John Hammond put on a concert here at Carnegie Hall, the most prestigious classical music venue in New York. He called it from spirituals to swing. And the idea was that he was taking swing music, which everyone knew as a pop music, and trying to show its depth, put it in context, of spirituals, of blues, of African music, and suggest that this was serious art, that this was something people should take with the same seriousness as European classical music. Hammond began the show by playing two Robert Johnson records. As a substitute, he brought on another blues singer, Big Bill Brunzi. Way down yonder in New Orleans, looking for a girl that I hadn't never seen, they said she got good jealous. Brunzi was based in Chicago. He had released over a hundred records under his own name. He wore sharp suits and played the latest musical styles. But because Hammond was in love with the idea that the blues came from a primitive countryside, he presented Brunzi as a simple farmhand. Hammond wrote, Big Bill Brunzi was prevailed upon to leave his Arkansas farm and mule and make his very first trek to the big city to appear before a predominantly white audience. 
He was completely a Chicago musician. But his job in that concert was to represent the rural blues, and so they turned him into that. And Big Bill Brunsey was no fool and realized that that was a good part to play and kept playing it in New York, in London, in Paris. I got the key to the highway And I'm built out and bound to go Blues was being redefined. It was no longer just black pop music. It was now folk art from the era before records and radio. Its new middle-class white audience heard the blues as music endangered by the modern world. Musicians and sociologists can now study American folk songs that have never been transcribed and would otherwise be lost if the library officials did not go into the field to record unknown primitive singers. In 1941, John Lomax's son, Alan, was at the Archive of Folk Song at the Library of Congress, and he was heading back into the field. Ain't what you do is the way that you do it. Ain't what you do is the way that you do it. Ain't what you do is the way that you do it. That's what gets rid Working with a team of black academics, Lomax set out to examine every aspect of music in the Mississippi Delta. They visited juke joints to discover what the locals were listening to. It wasn't Robert Johnson's blues, but recordings by urban black hitmakers. In Lomax's notes, there's a wonderful account of late one night, he's wandering around, um, stumbles across a juke joint on the edge of a cotton field and opens the door to find the, you know, the whole place lit up and everybody in there jitterbugging to, to, to fast swaller. I mean, this, this could have been any place. In his field trip through the Delta, Lomax recorded one man who was to become a blues legend a 28-year-old tractor driver, McKinley Morganfield, also known as Muddy Waters. I get laid over in the evening child, I feel that, like blowing my home. I woke up this morning and find my, my little baby gone. Muddy Waters had a profitable sideline distilling illegal liquor, so he was suspicious of this white man and his recording equipment. Muddy thinks that Alan Lomax is going to bust Muddy for bootlegging moonshine. And so Muddy doesn't trust this guy as far as he can throw him. The way Alan Lomax wins Muddy's trust is Alan White drinks out of the cup that Muddy has just had a sip out of. And Muddy thinks, oh my God, even the revenue agent wouldn't drink after a black man. This guy must be serious. I want to know the facts and, and how you felt and why you felt the way you did. That's a very beautiful song. Well, I just felt blue and the song veiled into my mind and it's come to me just like this song and I just started to sing and went on. I feel mistreated, girl, you know now. I don't mind dying. Living in Yeah, been mistreated, baby, now, baby, and I don't mind dying. 
Alan Lomax would return to the blues all his life, but he had an uneasy relationship with its commercial popularity. He always felt, of course, that it was the music of, of the people who were singing it. It wasn't an industrial music, it wasn't a big business music, it was actual music that had come from the hearts of people, you know, and from the, the lives they lived. Alan did not see the blues as a commercial form of music. He was more interested in documenting, like, the country-style blues, the early proto-blues and field hollers and those sorts of things. At the same time that Alan Lomax was recording Muddy Waters, new media were reaching the Delta. The first blues radio program began to broadcast from Helena, Arkansas, and they publicized themselves with a touring road show. It starts out light as air, white as snow, that's world famous king, that's the flower. The perfect flower for all your baking needs. King Biscuit Time was sponsored by a local flower manufacturer aimed at black listeners. Its broadcasts were timed to catch the workers at lunchtime on the plantations, including Muddy Waters. Oh, the Muddy. Muddy used to hear the show on the air every day at 12.15. And Muddy was out in the farmland listening to the show, and as so many others were. That's how they knew about it. They said, they should hear our kind of blues. We're the blues artists. Muddy Waters was beginning to get gigs at the juke joints in the Delta. The Blue Front Cafe started in the 1940s in Bentonia, Mississippi. Juke joint, music, drinking, gambling, eating, I mean, you name it. Uh, you'd have people come by not expecting a salary, but they would have a harmonica in their pocket, a guitar strap across their back, and they would play solo, sell a cap or a bucket down in front of them. They would play, and someone would contribute nickels, dimes, pennies, or whatever, and they'd play for that. Blacks were leaving the South in large numbers, pushed off the land by new machines on the plantations, and pulled towards the North, especially Chicago, by jobs in the factories. The motivation for Muddy Waters to put on his best suit, have his picture taken, and leave Mississippi arrived in the shape of a record sent by Alan Lomax. 
in an evening at the White House devoted to celebrating the blues, America's first black president focused on that moment. Womack sent Muddy two pressings from their sessions together, along with a check for $20. Later in his life, Muddy recalled what happened next. He said, I carried that record up to the corner and I put it on the jukebox. Just played it and played it and said, I can do it. I can do it. And in many ways, that right there is the story of the blues. Well, I feel in like I feel today. Heading for Chicago, Muddy caught the train out of the Delta in 1943. I'm I'm all Babe, I just can't be satisfied, and I just can't keep The trains were segregated. Black Americans rode in carriages at the back, and the journey itself was an education. They had a colored car, a regular car. One thing I always remember about the colored car, they left the windows open. <clears throat> so you go through the tunnels, you get all that stuff. In your face. Well, babe, I can't tell. In terms of learning about the real history of this country, you know, nothing, nothing is sharper than that, that teaching there, you know. Well, I know my little baby. She gonna jump and shout. That old train delayed me, Lord, and I come. In Chicago, Muddy plugged his guitar into electricity. The music made by Muddy and other musicians from the South didn't just change Chicago, it changed the world. Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion on uh, the origins of African music uh, in the United States, uh, music known as the blues, and its various uh, evolutions, so to speak. And uh, we're going to take a break uh, once again uh, with the music of Muddy Waters. Let's listen in. Well, the woman I love Great long curly hair Now don't you hear me talking, baby The woman I'm loving Great long Don't lie me down. 
this too is jazz. sound like the music of exotic, foreign places, and like many other kinds of music. But jazz is distinctly American music. It takes the most important elements in our culture and expresses them in musical terms. Let me give you my definition of jazz. Jazz is a special way of performing music, and a repertory that traces that special way of performing as it has evolved over the years. Where did this music come from? When Africans were captured to be sold as slaves, they were stripped of everything except what they carried inside their heads. Memories of their way of life and their culture. In African society, music had an importance far beyond entertainment. It served as a means of communication between people who spoke different languages, and it was a part of virtually every social activity from work to religious ceremony. In America, where slaves were not allowed to speak their native languages and were often forbidden to use the drum, music became a means of survival. Forced to work endless hours at back-breaking labor, slaves used music both as a form of relief and a means of communication. They created special songs to make the work more bearable and songs they called spirituals to express common emotion. shared rhythmic sense gave the music a unique vitality and spirit. This early music created by black slaves had all the basic characteristics of jazz. It was just a short step from the most rhythmic spirituals and work songs to the first authentic jazz style, ragtime. Though ragtime was created by black musicians, it seemed to express emotions and ideas that were so meaningful to other ethnic groups that it rapidly became the most popular music of its era. Jazz was a part of the popular minstrel shows and vaudeville shows, both of which introduced the music to wider audiences. It was also heard on street corners, in honky-tonks, and at picnics, dances, and other social events. Today, we think of ragtime as piano music, but it was first played on plantations and in southern towns by guitarists, string bands, fiddlers, banjo players, saxophone players, and brass bands, as well as being. Scott Joplin has provided us with some of the best known examples of the ragtime style. Although there were many instrumental groups performing ragtime before him, player piano roles brought his music into homes all over the country, and the ragtime craze was on. This exciting new music was created simultaneously in many southern towns, but it really caught on in New Orleans. The lively seaport community provided more opportunity than other southern towns for interchange among people of different cultural backgrounds. Its less rigid social attitudes allowed jazz to flourish in saloons, dance halls, honky-tonks, and other places of entertainment, so that the Crescent City became the first true jazz center. In New Orleans, music was and still is at the core of the black community's social life. There was music for church, 
for such social events as picnics and dances, marching bands for all kinds of special events, for many everyday activities, and for weddings and funerals. Much of this music was ragtime, and out of this everyday need for music came some of history's most innovative jazz musicians. Many of them played on the riverboats that traveled from the great port city of New Orleans, spreading the music up and down the Mississippi. As musicians traveled around, jazz acquired its unique sound and developed its own standards of form, complexity, literacy, and excellence, and its own syntax. Freddie Keppert, Buddy Bolden, King Oliver, and Louis Armstrong were all from the Crescent City. These musicians and others, like Jelly Roll Morton and Sidney Bechet, took the forms used by earlier jazz musicians and organized their musical ideas to provide continuity, variety, logic, and coherence to spontaneous musical expression. Their music was full of contrast, and it was flexible enough to accommodate a wide variety of personal musical choices. Out of these spontaneous musical ideas, a distinct jazz vocabulary and repertory was taking shape and being written down. One exception to this trend was the blues. Sometimes called secular spirituals, the blues sounded a lot like traditional spirituals. But the lyrics were different. Where spirituals expressed the group feelings and concerns of slaves, the blues expressed individual feelings and concerns in the years after the Civil War. In early blues, what was being said was more important than how it was being said. Its musicians were usually self-taught, and their music clearly showed the many links between the African-American song style and the traditional African song style. Although the blues developed alongside ragtime, most ragtime players of the time looked down on the blues because blues musicians were often illiterate wanderers who played on street corners and in cheap, undesirable places. The blues was basically vocal music formed from field hollers, cries, shouts, grunts, and other expressive sounds that conveyed emotions too deeply felt to be expressed in ordinary words. Most singers in the early days were male, like Blind Levin Jefferson, the blues was popularized by female singers, like Maureen. Smith. Oh, I really don't think no man's love can last. Oh, I don't think no man's Blue singers use their voices in ways that instrumentalists then imitated. As you can hear, blues melodies, harmonies, and rhythms are much simpler than those of ragtime. But they both retain characteristics of African music such as slurring up and down to a note. Mm -hmm. 
Vibrato. Call and response, breaks and syncopation. traditional jazz ensembles began to incorporate its elements into their work. The most famous instrumental blues styles were called honky-tonk and barrel house music. Today these styles are best known as boogie-woogie. And like ragtime, they're thought of by many as basically piano styles. The blues began to move into the musical mainstream in the 1920s, when trained musicians like W.C. Handy discovered the beauty and excitement in this earthy music and structured it in ways that made it accessible to the